This is David Tarkington, pastor of First Baptist Church of Orange Park. You're listening to the teaching ministry of our church. If you have any questions, please go to our website, firstfam.org, or contact us at 904-264-2351. We're going to be in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. We continue in this study through the book of Acts. We find ourselves staying with the sermon of Stephen as he is bringing this before the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders in the city of Jerusalem as he has been arrested and uh, falsely accused of, of breaking laws that he did not break, though he was proclaiming the gospel as others were. I'm going to begin reading in Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 17. This is Stephen's speech a portion of it, the longest sermon in the book of Acts with a captive audience of religious leaders having to listen to him. Beginning in verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive At this point, or at this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort... Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. The story of Moses is perhaps one of the most popular scripture passages or stories in the Bible, even from not just Jewish people who definitely know the story of Moses or Christians who know the story of Moses, but atheists and agnostics and anybody that has a television or ever heard of Charlton Heston likely has heard of the story of Moses. Moses' story has been told over and over and over again because as you read it, it is so amazing, it is so incredible, the detail and that which God was doing through that story of rescue and redemption through a slave baby born in Egypt and the rescue of God's people. As you look at this story, why it's placed here, where it's placed here, you are reminded or we are reminded here that that the story is of a boy born in Egypt as a slave and being hidden for a time by his mother, then placed in a little basket, floated down the Nile River, and then adopted by the daughter of the king, the daughter of the Pharaoh. And as I read that story, I'm often taken to the the fact that it is so hard. How, How do you keep a baby hidden? For that long? How do, you, how do you keep a newborn from crying? How do you keep anybody from understanding or knowing or telling that there's a baby there 
And I, and I often wondered about that until I, I made a mission trip a number of years ago, and I've told part of this story before. I know we're online today, so I'll try to, to, to not say too much, but I was a far eastern nation, and I was working with our missionary there, and at this point, I was in the large city, and it's a large city, and we were meeting in a donut shop near the university district of this city with a bunch of college students there in the city, in this nation, that wanted to talk to me, the American Christian, about what it means to be a Christian and how to, how to live through persecution. Of course, uh, I should have been asking them. Because they're living through persecution in a nation where it's illegal to be a Christian. It's definitely illegal to proselytize and tell anybody that you're a Christian. It's against the law to tell others how to become Christians. And it's actually a, considered from the governmental standard a myth to propagate the teachings of the Word of God. And yet here I am in this donut shop in the middle of this city talking to probably a, a group of about 10 of the, the smartest and most intriguing uh, 20-somethings that are in the university, many of them who are studying uh, things in the university that are, uh, I can't even define what they're studying. They're probably creating incredible things even, even now and, and geniuses at many levels. The one young lady, though, that really intrigued me, she was uh, the most outspoken about her faith, even though everything we talked about was couched in code because we knew the cameras were watching and these microphones were picking up our conversations. This is the story I've told you before where I pulled out my journal and half of them went under the table thinking it was a Bible because it's illegal to have that. But anyway, uh, she's talking, and I'm asking her questions. Tell me about yourself. Tell me about your story, about your faith. And she became a believer, and she is at this university. And it's a university district in the large city. There's probably 20 universities right there. So, so it kind of blows away the college town concept we have in America. You have a city with 20 universities with thousands and thousands of students, 20,000, 30,000 students at each of the universities in that district, if you can imagine the numbers. And here I am talking to her about what it's like to be a believer in that country and in that place. And, and she's inter introducing me to the others in the room. And, and uh, in this public space, they were pretty bold to even meet with me there. And there's a, a couple of young ladies there and a couple of other young men. They're believers. Some are brand new Christians. Some have been Christians for some time. Most every one of them are the only Christians in their family. And, and so that's an intriguing concept, even that. So there are actually family members that if they knew their children were Christians, the family members, parents even, would probably turn them into the government and they would go to prison for that. So let that just sink in. Where parents in America, church families at least, are just praying their kids find a church once when they go to college. Here are students in the university that can't go tell their children, parents that they're actually Christians and studying the Bible for fear of going to prison. But then I asked her to tell me about these others, and there was one young man that was with her, and he is not a believer, but he's intrigued by it and asking a lot of questions. And I said, well, well, who's this? And he introduces himself, and she says, this is my brother. To which I said, how can that be? I said, for I know the law of where we are right now. There's a one-child rule law in this country, and how can you have a brother? And she said, yeah, there's a one-law rule. It's changed a little bit, but back when we were born, absolutely, there's only one child allowed per family, and if there are any other pregnancies in the family and there's only already a child, then it's mandated abortions, and that's how it works. So I said, explain to me how this is your brother. She said, we're twins. I said, oh. She said, yeah, because the ruling was if you're twins, then both of you get to live. I said, well, that's amazing. That's encouraging, I guess, in some weird, strange way. She goes, yeah, we're twins. I'm a year older than him. 
To which I said, you got to tell me how this one works. She goes, well, here's how it works. We, we didn't live in the city. Uh, the, all roads lead to the city. This is where everything takes place. This is where the economy takes place, where you know, education takes place. Everything comes here. But we grew up in a rural area to the north of the city, many hundreds of miles away. And when I was born, it is known in our nation, in our country at the time, especially with the one-child rule, that you better hope you get a boy. Because if you have a girl, uh, you're not going to maintain the name, and the job may not be there later on, and she won't be able to take care of you when you're old. So everybody wants a son. And if you have a daughter, you just put the daughter out by the road and hope somebody takes care of them. Either the, do- the child is either, you know, either die or... They go to an orphanage somewhere. It's not unlike what happened in the Roman Empire during the days of the early Christians who rescued all the babies at Rotten Fields because they didn't want all those babies. So don't act shocked. This is the real world. This is what happens. She, I said, so you're the daughter. You're the oldest. And she goes, yeah, but my parents really wanted another child, and they really wanted a son, but they couldn't bear to just put me out and let, you know, let me die on the side of the road. I said, so what did they do? She said, well, they hid me for nine months and immediately began to try to have another baby. And the Lord has blessed our family, even though that not everybody in our family is a Christian. I know God has blessed our family in this way. And my brother was born nine months later. And my mother hid me for nine months and then registered us as twins. So legally, we're twins, but I'm nine months older than him. But being twins legally allows me to live, at least as a baby. Let me just say, for a sheltered American that doesn't understand that that really happens in the real world, you hear that story and you're going, is that real? And then you go, yeah, I guess it's real because I'm looking at the individuals right across the table from me and said, yeah, this is our story. And immediately it took me back <laughs> to the book of Exodus. And I'm thinking, you're like a Moses hidden by your parents until they couldn't hide you any longer. And God protected you. I don't know what's happened to this young lady or her brother since then. He was one of those that was about this close to becoming a Christian, if you know what I mean. I pray that he is a believer. I don't know what they're doing in their nation even now for the sake of the gospel, but if she is anywhere now where she was then as far as being on fire for the Lord and not really caring what everybody else has to say, then, then, then Lord, give us more young people like her. And we can definitely pray for the generations to come, whether they're here in America or somewhere else. The Lord is sovereign in all those areas. And I was more blessed to have the conversation with them, I know, than they were blessed to have the conversation with me that day. It took me back to the story. Stephen brings the story up before the Sanhedrin. And this is what's so interesting. Here's Stephen, the deacon, the arrested one, the one who we know because, you know, you've read the rest of the book of Acts, right? He's going to be killed shortly. First martyr in the Christian church. His life is going to end here on this earth quickly when the rocks start coming and he starts getting he's stoned to death. This is the real life story of Christianity as well. And so here he is brought before those who have his life in their hands and they say, do you have anything to say based on the accusations brought before you? And as we talked about the last two weeks, Stephen says, yes, let me do say something. Let's go back to the Bible study all of you guys know because you're smart religious people. You know these stories, but just because you know them doesn't mean you know them. And all the stories of the scripture in the Old Testament seem to be lodged in your head and haven't made their way down to your heart yet because you actually have me in this position. So let me tell you a story about Abraham. 
and the promise God gave him. You know that story, don't you? Yes, of course you do. Then let me then tell you the story about Joseph, the one whom God used to deliver his people by rescuing them during the age of famine through an incredible story that we talked about in depth last week. He reminds them of Joseph. And God delivered his people, look at this, into Egypt through Joseph. They were delivered into Egypt so they could survive. They were delivered into this land where eventually they would become slaves and the story of Moses comes around to deliver them out. Stephen is doing an Old Testament survey with the guys who wrote the book on Old Testament surveys, at least in that day. Stephen is schooling the scholars by teaching them and talking to them about the prophets of old and what God has done. And when he gets to Moses, you have this character in Scripture that is a character in history that is a real individual that had a miraculous upbringing, a birth at a time where babies were to be killed, boy babies especially, hidden by his mother as they are living in the land of Goshen as slaves and and servants with no freedoms any longer, protected by God, placed in a basket, pushed on down the Nile River, rescued by the daughter of the king who would have the baby killed and raised in the Egyptian palace. No one could write a story like this. You wouldn't believe it had God not orchestrated all of this. So you have Moses, this man of God, this prophet, used in such amazing ways that here we are thousands of years later still speaking of him. In fact, the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders that Stephen is speaking to did not have to be educated on the story of Moses. They just had to be reminded that you know better. The God who did that is the God who will do this, and that's what the message is. Moses is one of the two prophets who meet with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses was used by God to deliver his people, just as God used Joseph to deliver his people from certain death and famine by bringing them into the foreign land, Egypt, decades after the fact, God, same God, used Moses to deliver them from Egypt. Now, what's the problem with just hanging out in Egypt? Because Egypt was never intended to be the final destination for God's people. Egypt was never intended to be interpreted as that land of promise. It never could be, it never was, despite how much the people who lived there, I'm talking of the Israelites, how much they liked it there, it could not be home. It was just a temporary home. They were just passing through. Am I reminiscing with any of you now on some old Southern Gospel kind of songs here? Just passing through. See, here's what happens, though, as you, as you kind of dig into this story, this story of remembrance, this story of refocus. You have Joseph, Joseph, Joseph and Moses, neither perfect, but both precursors to the Christ. Both are redeemers, both are rescuers, both are men chosen by God to deliver his people. This is a story that would confirm that God is not constrained to a temple building, but that he resides within the people who have received Jesus Christ as Lord. 
It is a powerful message then, a needed message then, a powerful message now, and one we best listen to clearly to get. We can't risk missing this. The life of Moses is divided into three sections. I know you probably already know this, but Moses lived 120 years, and so his life is three 40-year segments. Stephen does a major Reader's Digest condensed version of the life of Moses. He does uh, probably the, most of the entire book of Exodus in just a short amount of verses. And in fact, the portion that I just read is two-thirds of Moses' life. The first 40 years, a great story of rescue. The second 40 years, a story of identity. The third 40 years, the story of the mission being played out. I love the story of Moses because it, it is a reminder to any Christian living today who thinks there is any veracity to retirement as a Christian to realize Moses didn't start till he was 80. It wasn't until age 80 that the burning bush story happens. It isn't until age 80 that he gets his act together and becomes the prophet who leads the people. That's an amazing reality when you realize that it's a third of his life and then it's the last third, those last 40 years. Now, if you can kind of work with me here and think about being an Israelite in Egypt. Being an Israelite in Egypt at this time, it's an interesting time because for many years, in fact, for decades, Egypt for the Israelites was very comfortable. It was the place where they were celebrated because Joseph was the second in command and has, is the dreamer who came up with the entire plan of food distribution. And Joseph not only saved the Israelites, he saved the Egyptians by God's design. Egypt was the only place for food in the region. Everybody else is starving to death. Egypt becomes a world power, a mega power due to this. And God blessed them, and there are generations and generations and generations of Israelites who never lived anywhere but Egypt. They were born there. They farmed there. They had some livestock there. They had friends there. Their school was there. They worshiped God there, but they were in a comfortable setting until they weren't. You see, for many years, being an Israelite in Egypt was a pretty good deal. Until, until Joseph was forgotten. You see, what happens generation after generation after generation after generation, for the most part, eventually, there's going to be a generation that rises up that presumes that the good that they have is because they're just good people and everybody deserves good, while not realizing that the good experience and the comfortable life they have and the complacency that they've landed in was paid for by somebody many generations prior that did the hard work. Hey, welcome to Independence Day celebration. See, this is not an American story, but it is. It's not a British story, but it is. It's a, it's a human story. Every generation eventually shows up that doesn't know those who've come before. And that's the story you have right here. And they knew that for generations, God had, pri had priorly, uh, previously protected them and provided for them so that they could have the blessings that they did. At least I'm sure that many of them still talked of that. But when life is good and life is easy and life comes based on what we want to do and what we desire to do, 
it's really easy to forget those who've come before. Until normal becomes abnormal. Until something changes out of our control. I don't know if you can relate to a people that was just living life in a comfortable setting with money in the bank and things going well and choosing to go where they want to go. I don't know if you can relate to this. It's a stretch for us to relate to a people that lived like that until some outside force changed all the rules. Until some outside force, like, I don't know, a pandemic made it where you didn't get to pick where you went, when you wanted to, and how you wanted to, and then somebody was telling you what you could and you couldn't do. Until the rules changed. For the Israelites in Egypt, life is good until the rules changed. And the rules changed when a Pharaoh took the throne that did not know the story of Joseph and did not care. And when that Pharaoh looked out and he feared the people, the immigrant population that was living in a reserved area of the nation that was given to them freely by those who were there prior. What do you do in a world that turn, is turned upside down and you have no control? What are the Christians, are, what are we supposed to do today? What are we to do when it seems like everything is out of control? You realize that one, God is always prepared. And that's probably a weak title of that, but God is never surprised. Look back at this verse. But at the time of the promise drew near, as it drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. That may not seem like a big deal, but that's a major sentence right there because when the Pharaoh, the king, rose up who did not know Joseph, he looked at the people that were the Israelites, and there's a difference. You could tell who the Egyptians and who the Israelites are. And he looked at them because they all lived in the land of Goshen that was given to them, and he looks at them, and they're increasing, and they're having a lot of babies, and there's a lot more of them than there even are of us. And what if one day those Israelites decide they want to form an army, and there is a coup, and they want to take over? Israelites are scaring me, says the Egyptians. King, and I don't know this, Joseph, nor do I care, but I do know this. They're in our land. We're going to put taskmasters over them, and we're going to build some things, and they're going to be the workforce. And all of a sudden, the honored guests become the slaves. Welcome to Egypt. And nobody in the Israelite nation voted on that. That's not fair. Life's not fair. I'm glad you learned that today, right? Life's not fair. We have our rights. There are no rights when you're the guest in Egypt. You're no longer guests, you're slaves. That's the story of Moses. That's the story that took place right there. And the Israelites are now living in a place they didn't choose to be. But here's the thing. It's all they've ever known. So where are they going to go? This ain't right. I went to school here. I grew up here. I, I've always, I was born here. But now you're a slave. And being a slave, being an, an Israelite slave in Egypt is, is, is different. The whole story is much different than, it, it, this, isn't, this isn't some taskmaster going into a continent, gathering human beings up, putting them on a ship and bringing them over as a workforce and selling them as property. Our American story has that one. These are people, look at this, invited in as honored guests and thankfully that you are here because you live, we now live because we have food thanks to Joseph. And then all of a sudden it just turns on a dime. And you're now slaves. When all that was normal became abnormal, when the rules changed without the Israelite vote, 
When fear crept in because the future was uncertain, the story of Moses reminds us that God never had a new idea because God was never surprised. God was fully prepared. God doesn't upset up there and going, wow, I, I don't know what's going to happen next week. I hope this works out. That's not God. That's the human version of God we create in our image, but not the God of Scripture who is sovereign over all. God is never taken by surprise. Nothing ever just comes to his mind as if he never thought of it before. The story of redemption is the story of the gospel, and it is shown even here in the life of Moses and these Israelite slaves. They could take comfort in knowing that regardless how uncertain life felt, how unpredictable life was, God was prepared. And that's our message today as well. But not only is God prepared, he still is prepared. God provides. Look at verse 20. At this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's eyes. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. You couldn't make this up. An obvious Israelite baby floating in a basket down the Nile where the Pharaoh's daughter comes out. It's orchestrated. We get this. And Moses' daughter is watching. And Pharaoh sees, Pharaoh's daughter sees the baby. And the God of the Nile has given me a child. And that's how she sees it. And now the little Jewish boy is raised in the Egyptian palace. Same palace that had decreed that little Jewish boys should be killed. And now he's a Jewish boy looking like an Egyptian boy, and he's raised in the palace with all that that he has taught and the wisdom. And you look at this and you're going, this is an amazing provision God has. But do, anybody here really, really want things to happen on your own timetable? Anybody? Anybody? Anybody here get, get, get frustrated when things take longer than you want? I grew up when we made popcorn on top of the stove and it took eight minutes. And then, thank the Lord, someone invented a microwave, so it took four. But I still get frustrated that it takes that long. So I buy sometimes pre-popped popcorn just so I can have it immediately, even before I want it. We want things immediate. When you realize the story of provision and rescue was an 80-year journey, 80 years, that's a lifetime. Older than the majority of people in this room, not as old as some, but 80 years of waiting patiently. I sure wish God would hurry up and fix these problems in this world. He is, and he didn't ask your permission, and he doesn't want your calendar. He's got one. It's working. He's providing. He does not necessarily let you know how it's working, but it's working. God is a God of provision. The Egyptians didn't know Moses would be that Moses. The Israelites didn't know Moses would be that Moses. Who is Moses? Moses is the only one that can interact with the Egyptians and interact with the Israelites in the way he can, but he's also the only one who is not fully accepted by either. You're not really an Egyptian. You're a Jew. You're an Israelite. You're not really one of us. You've been raised in the Egyptians' palace. You're, you don't get it. You don't understand our plight. That's Moses. Not unlike Paul, who was the only one who could preach to the Jews and the Gentiles in the way he did in the New Testament. It would be decades until the fruition of God's rescue of his people would come, but the God who is always prepared was already at work in a way no one could fathom. So take encouragement in that. God provides a way for redemption. 
He did it then, he does it now. Thirdly, God always presents the way. He prepares, he provides, he presents. Look at verse 23. When he, Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. We don't know what's going on in Moses' heart at this point, but we do understand the reality that he knew, always knew, that he was not an Egyptian. Probably reminded daily that he really wasn't an Egyptian. He was just, he looked like it, he dressed like it, but you're really an Israelite. And at age 40, which by the way, he's not a teenager, that's age 40, right? This is a guy that, you know, what, he should already be in his career 20 plus years at this point. He's 40 years old and he gets in his heart, I need to go visit my family. I see how they're oppressed and it bothers me. Maybe I'm the only one that can do anything about it. Well, it's not your place to say anything. Well, who else is going to say anything? The Israelites, oh yeah, they'll keep complaining of how bad it is, but who's listening to them? That's why you got to have a Moses. So Moses goes and he sees, and what does he see? He sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating the fool out of an Israelite. And Moses isn't perfect, and his rage rage, (laughs) starts growing within him. And he takes the Egyptian out. He probably, maybe, maybe he just wanted to say, hey, get away, but eventually he kills the guy. And as soon as he kills the Egyptian, in his mind, he's going, I think I went too far. And he buries the Egyptian right there and scuttles on back to the palace and hopes nobody knows. If they all had iPhones, that would have been videoed and placed on the news and trended on Twitter before 3 o'clock. Did you see what happened in this riot? This guy had a fight and he killed a guy and buried him in the sand and we've got to pretend like it didn't happen. It didn't trend virally online, but it trended among the Israelites. We know that because it says he came back later and he addressed the Israelites and they brought that up. Now, what's the big deal about killing an Egyptian? Punishable by death. That's a big deal. And I think this is a very strange story, by the way, that there's a lot of good stories about Moses, but why this story for the Sanhedrin? Why would Stephen tell this part of the story? Now, I know there's another third of Moses' life we're going to get to next week, but why this one about killing the Egyptian? There is a message here I think the men on the council needed clearly, and Stephen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gave it to him. Even in this strange account, you have Moses, an imperfect individual, not not Christ, but a preview of, of the Christ. You have Moses who seeks to rescue the downtrodden and the abused by stepping into the story. And it was a preview of the rescue for all of the Israelites that would come later in Moses' life and a preview of the story of the rescue of all of us who are downtrodden and abused, which is every human being, because of the sin nature that we carry. At that time, the rescue would be through a man named Moses. 
But in a time to come, and in Stephen's time, and in our time today, the rescue still comes through a man, but it's a man who's more than a man. It's not just a man. It is the God-man. It is the Son of God, God the Son, Messiah, King, Redeemer, Rescuer, Ransomer of hearts. It is Jesus Christ himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is that man, who is the ultimate man, Son of man, Son of God, who is there to rescue humanity, who we are, downtrodden, unable to rescue ourselves. As I read this portion of Stephen's sermon, getting into this portion and just closing this out, there is a passage in this portion of this life that just jumps off the page to me. I know next week it's going to get really good. Burning bush, rescue, exodus, all that. But look at this. We're not there yet. We're still at 40-year-old Moses. Or in his 40s. It says in verse 25, He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. Moses thought that the Israelites would understand that he was one of them. That he was there to help. That he was there to protect. That he was even there to rescue. But they, as it says in the verse, did not understand. Therefore, when... They confronted him and said, who do you think you are, our judge? It became very clear that the people he was there, his family, his brothers, the Israelites, the slaves, did not understand his love for them. Therefore, Moses left. He ran. He couldn't go back to the palace because now people know they're going to kill me. killed an Egyptian. So he runs away for 40 more years and waited for a calling from God that he did not desire, but came anyway, in a bush that burned but was not consumed, that said, go back and lead my people home. We'll talk about that later. But go back to verse 25. For that one resonates. He supposed they would understand that God was offering them salvation, but they did not understand. So here we have Peter or Stephen in front of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the high priests, the religious leaders, the religious Jews in Jerusalem, and others throughout the city who were offered salvation through, not Moses, but through Jesus Christ. And many did not understand. It's not unlike some of you and, and even me who have loved ones in our family who You look at it and you go, how could they be in church as long as they've been in church and still be so ignorant to the things of God? How could someone have all of that churchy stuff growing up in a good Christian home and still be far from God and unsaved? How can that be? How could someone what we take the time to talk to, to pray with, to care, to love, to share, say no? I would think once you heard the truth, you would understand. How could you not say yes to this Jesus? But sadly, they did not understand. And there are still some who do not understand. There are some watching on TV who are being forced to watch on their online version today with their family, and you're the one in the room going, I don't get this, and your loved ones are wondering, how can you not be a Christian? There are some perhaps even in the room in that state right now. Because there are always going to be some who do not understand. There are going to be some who choose not to understand. There are going to be some that do not want to understand. Because there are many who are content in their comfort 
and complacent in their life. In their confined religious perspectives of these Sanhedrin, conflict with arising, complacency reigning, they missed salvation. See, I think that sometimes we miss the story of Stephen, that he's presenting all this to them with the hopes that they would say, yes, we believe in Jesus, let's become brothers in Christ. That's not how it ended. They said, no, we hate Jesus and hate you, let's kill you. Some have said the days of the pandemic that we entered into when it really hit here in the States and really impacted us here in Florida back in March. Some have said this day of the pandemic and and the coronavirus and maybe even the, the, the racial tension and the riots and the fights over all these little minuscule things that are happening now. Everybody's picking their battles. You, gotta, you log on every day to figure out what you're supposed to be mad at today. And there are some who are saying, man, we're, we're positioned perfectly for a great revival. I've heard that. I, I, I hope that. I pray that. But sadly, here's another alternative. While we are being positioned perhaps in a place for great revival among the church, by the way, revival only happens to Christians. Lost people don't have revival. They get renewal. Okay, so, so you don't have revivals to invite your lost friends. You have revivals to wake up a dead church. So that's why you have revival. And I'm praying we do have a revival in the church in America and in the world today. But, but here's a possibility that I don't necessarily want to, to, to think could be true, but it is a possibility. While there is as a great opportunity for revival, there is sadly an, an opportunity to be a lot like the ancient Israelites in Egypt. Frustrated, confused, confined, maybe not comfortable. But when the winds of salvation blow through, they miss it because they don't understand, because they don't want to understand. Now, I I know God is sovereign and he writes the timeline and he doesn't check our calendar, but what if at that age they had responded to Moses' rescue plan? I I know we had to get to the rest of it. I get that. But what if today, The winds of opportunity of salvation are blowing through. The Holy Spirit is moving in such a way to awaken his church and to rise up new children of God. But so many are so consumed with all the other stuff that they miss him. You ready to wait another 40 years? Father, I pray that we will not miss you here. For if there just be one in the room or online that is being drawn by your spirit even now to say yes to you, may may they have the boldness and the guts to move out of comfort and complacency and religiosity and whatever it is that they have convinced themselves to be true that isn't. May they be true to you today and surrender. May we see a great revival among your church a biblically-centered, gospel-oriented, unapologetic revival. Not program-driven, not event-oriented, biblically-focused, centered upon you. May we not miss that as we confess that so often we are consumed with the peripherals that do not matter. Father, for the lost who may be watching, For the unsaved who may be in the room, oh Lord, 
you had a whole Sanhedrin full of religious people that were lost, that missed the opportunity to say yes to you. May that not happen today. Give us the wisdom to respond well in Jesus' name.